this morning, we will be in Matthew 28, and we're actually doing all of Matthew 28. You can at least divide this into two sermons, but we'll do it as one uh, because we're just going to keep moving. So Matthew 28, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which has the resurrection and the commission. So both of those things happen in Matthew 28 because Matthew's bringing us, right? How a story ends is kind of important, kind of put some pieces together. So it's good to see how Matthew is ending all of this telling of Jesus' life and ministry in chapter 28. It reads like this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Remember yesterday, Jesus, or last week, Jesus was left in the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. So head north and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, it's a great little line, look. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to his governor's ears, or to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So we'll take, you know, if dad gets mad, we'll, we'll handle dad. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Pray with me. Father, your son rose, and we are here today, and we gather this morning, and we sing, and we read your scriptures because Jesus is alive. This morning, as we read about the resurrection and the commission, we would ask that these truths cut us to the heart, they show us how great Jesus is, that we would be transformed by his grace and for his glory, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, one thing people are not short um, on opinions on or about is the church. That just takes no time for people to quickly tell you how they feel a church should 
operate, what they think is the right way to do church and the wrong way to do church, almost always culturally appropriated, right? Like we're always kind of like, well, based upon the culture that we live in, this is how church should be. You go to other cultures and it's going to be nothing like that. But we know what's right, right? We know how it should look, so we go, oh, that's too seeker sensitive, or that preaching's like this, or that music's too loud, or that music's too soft, or that music's like this, and it's usually music related in our culture because everyone has an opinion there. This church doesn't care about this issue enough. This church doesn't care about that issue enough. This church is, you know, they, they, they're too much like this. Oh, have you heard about their pastor? Their pastor's like that. Can you believe that they do things like this? Can you, you know, I, I think the way that they handle this is terrible. Like, it, it is well known, I think for all of us, everyone in this room, maybe some of the kids don't, but they probably even do too, more honest with, it, with me than they are with, our, you know, with adults. Everyone in this room has an opinion about what a church should be. Everyone has an opinion about how a church should look. Everyone has an opinion about how a church should function. If you're in this room today, you have that. You like certain things, you don't like certain things, you go, I wish we didn't, how come our church doesn't? That's one of my favorite questions. How come our church doesn't blah, 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 blah? I'm like, I don't know, because we don't. How come your other church did? I, I, I don't know. So, you know, banging children's ministries, that's awesome. It really never ends because there is no just right church, even though we're kind of like Goldilocks, right? Like, you know, we're like, we want to have, well, this church is, you know, this church is too hot, and this church is too cold, and this church is too rigid, and this church is too soft, and this church is like this, and this church is like that. And it's funny because the way we talk as Christians often determines or at least communicates some of what we care about. And it's funny because if we audited the way that we critique even churches, it might demonstrate that we care about things that are not the most significant. And we're not even talking about like secondarily significant. We, we care about things and make them priorities that aren't priorities. We take things that matter to us because we're weird and we elevate them to the level of what matter to us, Right? Everybody needs to think about it like this. Everybody needs to function like this. But when we do that, we might be missing some of the most important parts of why we gather what we do. So think about this church. That's fine because all of you have a grid for Genesis. You're all here. Most of you come here regularly. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. But also the question, why do we come? Why are you here and why does it matter? So we have different answers for that. Well, it's the people. Oh, the people are great. And that's true. I think so. But it's the people isn't sufficient to continue to come. Because the people change. I change, you change, we change, life happens, things are different. So, right? Like, it's the people as they are currently. But a year from now, I might hate these people. So you can't really lean on that as the dominant reason because that's always in flux. Well, it's the music. I come here for the music. That won't get you far either because that always changes. It always changes. It's the building. Well, no one comes here for that, I can promise you. Like, man, I just go to Genesis because I just love their facilities. But to take it a little more broadly because we like to think very narrowly about things. What should the church be about? What should we be concerned about? Where should our attention as a church be? Where should your attention as a disciple of Jesus be? And odds are, don't answer it out loud, but odds are we likely put our thing at the top of our list, or just as a safe answer, 
without much thinking, we just go, Jesus. It's just about Jesus. You know, I'm like, well, that, that's absolutely true, right? You walk in, making Jesus known. It's, it's like, if your church isn't about Jesus, you're probably not a church. I'm just going to go ahead and like, take a flyer on that one. Pretty good guess. But when we try to define the church based on our preferences or our experiences, the crazy thing is that we still might miss what binds us together, what makes things matter. So, as we finish up this section in the Gospels, and we weren't here long, right? We kind of, Jesus' birth, Jesus' temptation, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' commission. Like, we're not staying here very long as we look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of what we have seen, Genesis 1 through all the way into Malachi. Like, Jesus is pointing towards Jesus. Jesus enters into the world. People are receiving him in a confused fashion. But as we finish up this section, we end in Matthew 28 the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look or build on what we did last week, which was looking at Christ, you know, crucified, died, and buried. But it doesn't end there. It ends with risen. And then as Jesus is risen, the resurrection, we also look at the aftermath of that. So with Jesus' resurrection, everything changes. If not for the resurrection, and I was trying to have this conversation with my kids even this week just to you know, test them because they're PKs and the poor guys have to have the right answers. Um, and I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, you know, why did Jesus have to be raised? Why, did he, why, why couldn't he just be dead and have died for our sins? You're like, well, if he were dead, he'd still be in the ground and couldn't do stuff for us, I think was the answer that I got. So that's actually accurate. <laughs> like, that's, that's it. He'd still be in the ground and he couldn't do stuff for us because we all need stuff done for us. That's the kind of perfect answer that I'm looking for rather than this kind of flighty, uh, all your uh, logical words, you know, like, oh, well, the, you know, sanctification and justification and glorification of our revelation, right? Like, if he, were, if he were still dead, he'd be in the ground and he couldn't do stuff for us. Yeah. So the resurrection changes everything. And then in response to the resurrection, Jesus gives his disciples a specific command. So the amount of time Matthew spends in the resurrection account isn't really that long. He doesn't spend a lot of time in it. Then he moves on, and he doesn't end his gospel with the resurrection like Mark does. He ends his gospel with the commission. So we're going to take both of these together, because there's a reaction to Jesus' resurrection, and there's a response that those who see Jesus for who he is should have. So we're going to look at those in two parts, right? The first 15 verses, and then 16 through 20. And the reaction is this, that the resurrection produces fear or joy in those who realize it. Fear or joy. Both of those things happen. Now, everybody in the story gets fearful for a moment. But some are consoled, and some just kind of stay there. The people who are consoled and said, do not fear, are those who are actually following Jesus and believe in him. And they're trying to understand what's going on here. So we're going to start with the first reaction. We see fear and joy. Fear happens to all of us. But with the disciples here, the fear is replaced with joy. And by disciples, I mean those who are following Jesus. So we start with the Sabbath having ended, verse 1, the beginning of the week, it's Sunday. Mary, Magdalene, Mary, mother of James are there and we're heading to the tomb. And immediately, right, earthquake. Earthquake's there. Angel comes down in verse 2. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled the stone and sat on it. Now, notice real quick in verse 4 what we read. And for fear of him, 
the guards trembled and became like dead men. So they stonewall back, angels there, guards are freaking out because they see an angel and what they were supposed to do, they didn't do very well, which would be sure nothing happens to the tomb. But look at the language of verse 4. You see it? The guards who are alive and are supposed to be guarding the tomb of a dead man, when they see the stone rolled back, are filled with fear and they become like dead men. Matthew's purposeful here. Like, the dead men aren't, the dead man's not in the tomb. The dead men are the ones who are freaking out behind the tomb going, what in the world happened? They become like dead men. So it's a reminder that as we approach, the approach of the world for the things of Jesus simply does not work. They're trying. They were given a commission, or essentially the guards, like, stand there, be sure that no one comes and destroys the tomb or takes the body or anything like that. Well, they did not do their job. Now, I want to stay with the guards for just a minute because their telling of the story is rather interesting. So if you go to verse 11, kind of that second paragraph in the telling, you'll see uh, what they say um, as they return to the Jewish leaders and they say they all, they went and told the leaders all that had taken place and then they go over their cover-up plan, verses kind of 13, 14, 15. So the leader's are like, hey, tell the people, his disciples, now I just want you to listen to how ridiculous this is. Tell the people, his disciples came and stole him away while we were asleep. The guards were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, the governor hears about it, we will take care of it. Don't you worry. And so they took the money, they were bribed to do this, and they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. There are even religions today that do not believe that Jesus was crucified or that Jesus rose because that would kind of mess with what they believe. So, no way that this happened, we're going to go ahead and bribe you. Now, what I would like to just say here is that this is incredibly ridiculous. And it's a really bad cover-up for a couple of reasons. First, the situation requires that the guards be asleep. That they be asleep. Well, if you realize what guards are supposed to do, sleeping is not one of them. It's not like, oh, hey, you just go take a nap, it's fine, no big deal. So if they were to be found asleep, if they were Roman guards, they could lose their life. But they could at least and probably should lose their job. Because it's like, you remember, like, like the Twitter account, you had one job, like they had one job, not fall asleep, be sure nothing happens to the body. That was all that they had to do. So first, the situation requires that they've fallen asleep, it could have gotten them beaten, it could have gotten them severely punished, yet they were okay with the plan. That that seemed like a better solution than just saying, Jesus is alive. No, let's just go ahead and do a, a, a humiliating thing instead. Rather than say Jesus is alive, we're going to go ahead and say we were asleep and something else happened. So second, the disciples, and we all know the disciples to be incredibly faithful men, don't we? Who scattered like roaches as Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was approaching. And Peter's like, I don't even know the guy. Like, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm unsure of who he is. Right? So the disciples who have scattered are somehow supposed to come up with a plan to steal his body because the disciples could agree on nothing if you follow along with their teaching, like, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. You're the greatest. Like, all they did was argue with one another over who's the best. And then as Jesus' final moments were coming, they all just start to leave. And yet we're supposed to believe that it was the disciples who came along and hatched this master plan 
while the guards were sleeping to roll back the stone, which I can't imagine would be a quiet undertaking, roll back the stone, not wake the guards, grab the body of Jesus, and take him out. So ridiculous thing number one, the guards just going ahead and claiming they were asleep. Ridiculous thing number two, the disciples somehow being on the same page enough to actually pull this thing off, when throughout Jesus' ministry with them, they could do nothing in agreement for the most part. And then third, that this was all worth just some shekels. Like, oh yeah, we'll just pay you. We'll just pay you to say these things and this story would spread. And it's interesting here because this fearful reaction, and look at all of the ways that fear was producing responses. That fear was making them tremble, that fear was making them go, that fear was making them cover it up, that fear was making them kind of buy into an elaborate story that when you just think about it, is not, does not make any sense and wouldn't have happened. But this is what happens in human hearts. The uh, word might be that we suppress what we know is true. We suppress what has been revealed. We suppress what is real about God. We suppress what we could have as anchors in our life and go, no, 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 that's not true. And we create other structures, other beliefs in which we live our lives or by which we live our lives as if somehow those are sufficient. All in response or reaction to trying to hide the reality that exists. Jesus is real and that Jesus rose. Now contrast this with the response of the Marys. So you look in verse 5. The angel comforts them. Do not be afraid. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. So whatever we hear in that moment, or whatever they fear in that moment, was to be removed and kind of placed in the right category. Don't fear. Don't be bothered by this. Any of you have ever done kind of the word statement? That phrase, do not be afraid, is one that God or God's angels or the Lord himself will speak to those who follow him. Don't be afraid by this. Don't be fearful here. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. So in verse 8, the women run out to tell the disciples what they've seen, which is what they've been asked to do. And I'll stop for a moment and say this, because this is a pretty cool telling. If you've done our reading plan, you will find that uh, the resurrection accounts of the guys are, who are writing are telling the story with their end in mind. Not to say they're just kind of making up details, but you read the stories and you go, they're not telling the story in the same way. They're not, they're not, and they're not highlighting the same things. John 21 does not even exist in any of the other examples, like Jesus cooking breakfast and being with the disciples. Like that's, that's a part that we don't even see. And so each gospel is testifying to these truths, but highlighting different aspects of what is going on. But one thing that all of these gospels have in common is the presence of these women at the tomb. And this is pretty cool when you think about this, that the eyewitness evidence of women was not viewed as credible in this, in this world. And so, just imagine for a second, if you are trying to fabricate a story about something that happened so that people might believe it, you might want to put people the culture would have viewed as credible witnesses at the tomb. But all of the tellings, as you read them, have these women at the tomb. 
with absolute confidence that this is what happened. And with no concern about the strength of their testimony in a Roman court of law. It's just one more thing thrown in there that allows for the human heart to trust in what we are reading. They're not trying to hide details from you. They're not trying to change details for you so that you somehow find them more believable. The women appeared first and they're commissioned to go and speak of what happened. And they do. But then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. So on their way to go, Jesus finds them and greets them. Greetings. I'd be a little, a little scared by that, but greetings. And they react with worship. You can see that in verse 8. Jesus said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said the same thing. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go and tell the others that they need to see me. And so they go and they declare. So we see these two responses, fear, from both. But one aspect of fear in the disciples turns into worship. And fear in the guards turns into cover-up. So worship of those who are following the Lord. Fear that kind of remains and to try and hide, suppress, and cover up on the other side. But the truth is this. When the truths of Jesus confront us, because they do, there is always a decision to make. And I do mean this both for our salvation and just as we are walking with the Lord and we are reading the scriptures and we go, wait a second, I haven't read that before. What? It's confronting us, and it demands something from us. So we can either try and suppress it, hide it, remove it, adjust it, kind of crawfish our way out of it, which is a Louisiana thing I know, so um, kind of back out of it in some way, or we embrace it. We embrace it, just like they embraced Jesus there at the tomb. So clearly... One thing the scripture is abundantly clear about, so I'll say use clearly twice because that's you know, good grammar, is the centrality, the, the importance, the significance of the resurrection and how we operate. That when we, we hear about, you might hear mission statements or churches, like we are a New Testament church. Founded on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Spirit, which we will read about next week, But that is what makes us who we are. That we are not a church that worships dead men. Or a dead man. The reason that we say what we say and sing what we sing sing and do what we do is because Jesus rose. This is something that we should always marvel about. The finished work of Jesus. Last week when he said it is finished and then when that is made clear in the resurrection, that his words weren't just empty, but they carried with it the weight of the words of God because he was God. That we just stand amazed, as the song says, at what he has done. Our faith hinges upon this reality that then made every other reality significant. Because if it didn't happen, as my kids would say, then he's still in the ground and he can't do stuff for us. 
He can't save. He can't intercede. He can't minister. He can't care. He can't guide. He can't direct. Everything that Jesus is able to do for the Christian now and today exists because Jesus is alive and not dead. We do not just kind of bank on the fact that we hope things are okay in our life or that we hope things work out or that we hope Jesus is real. We bank on Jesus having risen from the dead with a resurrected, glorified new body that is the first fruits of our own. That because he rose, we will rise. Which 1 Corinthians 15 gives significant development to the idea of the resurrection and what it means for the Christian. This is not just something that we should think about at Easter. Because this is what makes us who we are. This is what we latch on to. Jesus crucified, died, buried. Third day he rose. Then he ascends. Necessary for our salvation. But Jesus doesn't end there, which he could. That's how Mark ends. Mark just kind of ends at the tomb. Jesus continues to teach and to train and we know he does this from the gospel over the book of acts he does this for 40 days after his resurrection he's teaching he's revealing he's training he's explaining he's trying to get these guys to understand what's about to happen but as matthew comes to a close we are given words from jesus might hear them as the great commission that makes sense of the reality so we see what he has done and we don't just kind of go, man, that was cool. But he actually then commands them to do something about it. So one flows from the other. If we just kind of focus on the Great Commission exclusively, then we just become doers and trainers, but we might miss the fact that it flows right out of the resurrection account because this is true, because Jesus rose, because he has authority that came from his resurrection then he can command what comes in this last paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. The reality, or the response is this, go and make disciples, which we've heard before, you've probably heard, but it happens because of the resurrection. So we'll find these in verses 16, 18, 19, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, let's skip in 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, Look at the response. They worshipped, but some doubted because it's still kind of like, what in the world is going on? How is this happening? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, because of this authority, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So with the resurrection a reality, Jesus gives these words to the disciples as a response. But before we get into the nuts and bolts here, I want to try and work on some definitions, because they can be confusing. Or we just don't even define them, so we don't know what Jesus is really saying. So you'll hear phrases in church life like disciple or disciple-making or discipleship, and I will use all of those 
and I, when I preach, just about every Sunday, you'll hear some type of language like that. The reason become, comes from these verses, as well as others, but predominantly right here. But I want to go through just a few of these to help us out. First, a disciple. Simply put, a disciple is a learner. It is one who is attaching her, you know, her uh, wagon to one's teaching and going, this is the direction I'm, I'm, I'm with him, or I'm with her, or whatever it might be. A disciple is a learner in general. So there were disciples all over. There were disciples of John the Baptist. There were disciples of different schools of Jews. There were disciples of all kinds of different people. And we'll even say, right, like we'll talk about in like college football, the coaching tree. Oh, disciple of or trainer of or person who's from this, right? So this is something that the language of disciple is not something that's exclusive to the church. But what it means is a learner, that I'm, I'm learning from this person how to live. So disciples and learners. When Jesus is saying, go and make disciples, he's saying, go and make people who are learning me, learning my rhythms, learning my teaching, learning from me. So everyone is a disciple of something. Many people, and maybe even us in ways, are disciples of culture. We just kind of allow the culture to train us in how to think and how to behave and what to care about, but we are all disciples of someone or something the second idea and this is not really in the in the text when it says make disciples you'll hear me talk about disciple making which kind of for me is going to be two-pronged right that you're entering into the lives of people from all nations to point them to jesus in hopes that they put their faith in jesus and train them up so that they might be more like him so a disciple's a learner. Disciple making is that kind of one-two punch of the evangelistic output of the church, the sharing and proclaiming the gospel amongst the nations so people might turn to him and then be trained up in him. And then finally, nations, go and make disciples of all nations. I would say more helpful maybe in our thinking is to think about this as peoples or people groups rather than kind of geopolitical boundaries because the nations that existed when Jesus said this don't exist in today like they do now, and nations that existed now didn't exist 50 years ago, and so we're not thinking just about geopolitical boundaries and going, like, like just kind of check marks on a map and going, okay, this country's been evangelized, this country's been evangelized, this country's been evangelized, so we're good, because like you, you, China has a lot of people in it, but it has way more people groups, and a people group is a group of folks united by common language, common culture. There are many, many people groups in the world with no witness of Jesus, with no scriptures in their language, with no church and with no believer. So if you are about making disciples of all nations and you just think I need to have Christians in geopolitical countries, you might go, chick, we're good. But if you think about the thousands upon thousands of people groups, hundreds of millions, over a billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus, then it puts the commission in a different light. So disciples, a learner. Disciple making is that, that process of going to and evangelizing and then training them up. Why? Because Jesus rose and he is worthy of being spoken of as Lord and Christ, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2. And the nations... All peoples, all language groups, all cultures, go and declare this 
and might that word continue to flourish throughout all the world. So let's hear what Jesus commands his disciples to do with this in mind. So he says this in verse 18 about authority. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Why? Because he's the one who is perfectly obedient. His death was sufficient for our forgiveness. His resurrection proves as much. So he is God. He is Lord. He is Christ. He has given of himself in perfect obedience. And so he has every right to say, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. So you go. You go. Which is what he says in that second part. Because of his authority, because of who he is, because of what he's done. This is why you, know, you have to recognize authority. So if a you know, kid says to me, hey, can I go do X, Y, Z, and it's not my kid, I'm like, hey, go ask your parents. You know, I'd be totally cool with it, but go ask your parents. They might not want you to punch somebody in the nose, but I'm fine with it. It's the recognition of authority. I'm not... I'm not going to not have an opinion, but I'm not that authority. All authority has been given to Jesus, so all followers need to obey him because of that authority. So he says, go and make disciples. And it's both a command and a destination. Go make disciples of all nations. To those people who have not yet heard the gospel and have not yet been able to respond to it. That if we believe what we believe about total depravity, then everyone needs to hear and respond to Jesus because if not, they are hellbound. That it is urgent. You can't just go, oh, well, God's sovereign and he'll get to them in time. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, you're my followers. You go. You go. So sometimes, I'm going to do a little, uh, uh, for you grammar nerds, kind of tune in here. Sometimes you might hear this passage taught in a way that I find inaccurate. And they'll say something like this. Oh, well, what Jesus really means, because the yeah buts and the really means are like the enemy of the scriptures. What Jesus really means here is as you are going, you make disciples. And what that could mean is, well, you know, when you stumble into it while you live your life, you just go ahead and share Jesus with somebody or, you know, you just be nice to somebody or be kind or give them a dollar just as you kind of go along with what you would do. But that is not the case here. If you want to look up what an attendant circumstance participle is, you could look that up, but you don't really need to. Uh, but what it really means is that when Jesus says go, it's carrying the weight of make disciples. Go and make disciples is a command, not a suggestion. But when we hear it, sometimes it has been misinterpreted as a nice suggestion for us to do. That kind of, as you go live your life, you train people up when you can and how you can. But go is a command and make disciples is a command. And together it means that we as a church, we as believers, need to be intentional about how we make disciples of all nations. That it does not happen by mistake. And this is how I know this, because I'm one of you. And life creeps up on you quickly. And then like kids and nieces and nephews and families and jobs, all of that kind of gets thrown into the mix. And it becomes more and more difficult to be intentional about the making of disciples. I was talking with a buddy recently, and he said this, he said, Man, we, we had years together, and it was awesome. 
He goes, to be honest with you, I probably haven't grown at that rate or in that way since that kind of few year span that we had together. I'm like, well, thanks. You know, I'm awesome. No, it's not. Wasn't that at all. But you know what starts to happen. Then you start doing this, and you start doing that, and you're trying to make life work. And like in a year, two, three, five, 10, 15, 20, 25 goes by, and you have not obeyed the command of the Lord, that you have not given attention to that. And so what we start to do is look for an excuse, like how can I justify my lifestyle and make sure that I'm still doing it? Like, oh, well, just kind of as you go and as you're able, you do it. No. It's always a command, and it always carries that weight. So how does he do this? Because he doesn't leave us hanging. I love this about Jesus. He's like, let me give you what that would mean. Go and make disciples of all nations. So command with a destination, and it has two elements, baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. All because he rose, right? Like, this is all because, like, here I am. Now, this is what you do. And it wasn't just like, look at me and think I'm cool, right? He's like, go. Now it's time to go. So the first element of disciple-making is baptism. But it isn't just any baptism, because just like there were disciples everywhere, baptism happened in other uh, religions and movements as well. So there were, again, uh, those who were baptized in the baptism of John that you run into in the book of Acts. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit means that you are identifying them with the unique revelation of God as three in one. So the question of like the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. No, it doesn't. But God as Father, Son, and Spirit certainly does. As spoken by Jesus. Baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is baptism? Fundamentally, baptism is about identification. And it's identification in two ways. You're identifying them with the work of Jesus. And the revelation of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And you're identifying them with the faith family. That's why we want to do it together. That's why next week we'll be celebrating baptisms together. And when people are up and they're declaring their faith in Jesus, and we watch them, we're like, this is family. We see it and we rejoice in it because it's about identifying with the work of God for us, a break of our former life with what is to come, and identification with those brothers and sisters who have done the same. So we want to take it seriously. Now, throughout history and within different traditions, there are varied views on baptism, both on how to baptize. Do you sprinkle? Do you dunk? Do you, you know, use a river? Do you, what, how, like, there's that. Secondly, when to baptize. How to baptize and when to baptize. So you could go to our website, About Us Baptism. We kind of spell that out. But I'm going to give you three bullet points for Genesis as we think about this, Okay. Bullet point number one, at Genesis, when we think about baptism, we practice an exclusive view of believer's baptism, which means that we will baptize people on a profession of faith. That when we recognize they profess faith in Jesus, we meet with them, we discuss with them, as far as we can tell within good conscience, we want to baptize those folks. When we look at the New Testament witness, that's what we seem to find, is that faith comes before baptism. Second, we usually, though not exclusively, baptize by immersion because we think that that is the best representation of the idea. Does that mean that if there's a situation that arises, would we baptize differently? Sure. I told the story a couple, uh, maybe a month ago or two months ago about my grandmother at, I think, 95, 96, wanted to be baptized. And so 
grandma was dressed nicely and she probably wasn't going to dive into the dunk tank. So they pour over her, poured water over her head. It's not like God's like, well, I can sanctify some of that, but not all of it because you didn't get, you know, wasn't totally drenched. So we're going to practice an exclusive view of believer's baptism, and we're going to practice it by immersion. Now, we do not, and this is going to be kind of over some people's heads, but if you're in, you're in. We don't practice infant baptism or covenantal infant baptism uh, like maybe our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would. But we recognize that conviction, and we would not withhold membership or communion for convictionally held covenantal infant baptism. There are views of infant baptism that we would reject. We just go, nope. That is not what we see. There is not regeneration there. We're not in. So we recognize the need to be unified together. And so we would not make rebaptism your kind of ticket into joining Genesis. We would not make rebaptism your part of being a part of the faith family, taking communion, or using your gifts here. But that is where we would stand. We see this as the view that's held in Scripture. We're going to practice it by immersion in every instance that we can. And while we do not believe that infant baptism as it is practiced in some Protestant traditions, is the best reading of Scripture, we also are not going to go, hey, man, you know, you can't ever be here because of that. So hopefully that helps. There's more in that document for you. But there's the quick view. So this is the cool part. Baptism in the Great Commission demands evangelism. Demands it. Think about it. Jesus is there with the disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's an identification piece. But think about it. Where are the Christians? They're kind of all together right now. So if they're going to baptize people and identify them with the work of Jesus, then they have to go proclaim that message to people who haven't heard it yet. And so the Great Commission demands evangelism. It demands proclamation. And then there's that second aspect, the teaching to obey all that I've commanded. Not just teaching, but teaching to obey. Well, how do we know what Jesus has commanded? We read his words. We pay attention to them. We discuss them. That's why in Genesis, we're going to go to the scripture and go, what's going on here? Remember our sermon from John chapter 1, that Jesus is the word. He's the revealed word of God. He is God. So when we read the scriptures, we're reading God's word to us, and we are learning how to better obey Jesus. The teaching to obey. So, up to this point, Jesus rose, death has been beaten, everything that Jesus said he would do has been done, our sins are forgiven, our lives have been changed. This is our motivation. Jesus gathers with his disciples and says, go and make disciples of all nations, going to places where my gospel, my name has not been preached See them come to faith by God's grace, baptize them, identify them, train them up toward obedience. And he ends with comfort. He's with us. You're not doing this on your own. I am with you even to the end of the age. I think it's like, it, it's like a rite of passage that when you're learning how to swim, you get really freaked out. And your mom or your dad or your instructor, whoever it is, is the person who's helping you, right? When they start to let go, what do you think? They're gone. I'm going to drown. There's no hope. It's all over. Is that the case? No. 
and it took me teaching my kids how to swim to realize that the adult in the room usually doesn't leave. Because the fear of like whatever age I was, huh? Be like, oh, where are you, right? Like, you know, help, help, help. I'm like, I'm right here. Like, I'm not gonna leave you. But yet fear, in the wrong sense, can still cripple the disciple. When Jesus says, I'm there, whether we are going to the neglected or we're going to a neighbor or we're going to the nations, Jesus is there. For us, it's a matter of faith. So I say this to us in closing, that we should take Jesus' last words to heart, make disciples. That we should be concerned about the thing that Matthew puts at the end of his gospel, on the tail end, flowing from the resurrection of Jesus, that we need to take him seriously in two or three ways. First, do I believe that what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done is true? Because it's all built on him. So do I believe in him? Do I have confidence in him? Have I turned from my way, my sins, my thoughts as being better, and given myself over to the resurrected Lord? If that is you today, you haven't done that, then nothing else that I say in this moment will even be significant because you'll just be doing Christian things. So the first thing is, do I trust in the person and work of Jesus? For those who have placed their faith in Jesus, just a few questions. First, in whom are you investing and praying for? Both investing your life and praying would come to know the Lord. Very often, we don't even have those people that we can name. People who get to see us, the people that we invest in. And Jesus has shown the disciples how to make disciples. It's not like he didn't give them a model. He was with them. He instructed. He trained. He gave them opportunities to minister. So first, in whom am I investing that they might become more like the Lord, and for whom am I praying that they might come to know the Lord? Now, I want to give an aside to parents or grandparents in the room because sometimes we want to ask this question. We go, what about my kids? Does our parenting check off the making disciples box? I want to say two things about that. First, your children are absolutely a priority for your disciple making. The Lord's given them to you. And so you need to be concerned about training up your children to know and follow the Lord. Secondly, and hear me on this one, we should not use our children as an out to not be concerned about people in our life who don't know Jesus. Because it kind of competes with what goes on in our head, like, oh, I'm just going to focus right here until my kids are 18 or 19, they're out of the house. Well, if that's what we do, and we don't demonstrate that we too are trying to fulfill the words of Jesus, then they have been given a model that says, I'm the most important person in the world. All of our attention goes just toward our kids. All, all, right? Hear me, all. If that's where it all goes, we kind of go, hey, I don't do the rest of that stuff because my, my whole disciple-making thing is right here. We're missing it. And then we have modeled something to our children that we don't want them to be able to do. We want them to be concerned about people from other nations. We want them to be concerned about our neighbors. We want them to be concerned and hear us praying for and meeting with and caring for and instructing. We want, we want that to be a part of our family life. So rather than try and think of these as two different worlds, think about how am I building up my children to be concerned about the things of God? And am I modeling, even as a parent, the most significant aspects of the Great Commission? So think about it this way. You have precious little time to train up children. 
And one of those things you need to train them up in is a concern for those around you who don't know the Lord. If all of your energy is just spent there, and you go, well, I'll get to the other parts later, then you have shown them a model that is insufficient for how you would want them to operate as adults, following after the Lord faithfully. Second question I would have, so in whom are you investing, is who has invested in you? And this is often why we answer the first one with I don't know. It's because no one's actually taken us, trained us, helped us, encouraged us, cheered us on, been there for us, counseled us, loved us, prayed for us in a way that has moved us to a place of maturity. So what I mean is this. Because we haven't been doing it, we don't know what it looks like, so we just kind of sit there and go, I'm not really sure how to live this thing out. So, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So he's going, he's like, you have babysitters. You have people who can talk to you about cool ideas in the Bible. You have podcasts that you can listen to. You have books that you can read. But you have nobody who cares for you tenderly and lovingly in a way that desires like a father to see your maturity. Right? Podcasts don't disciple you. Books don't disciple you. They give you ideas, but really, people disciple people. Ideas don't. And so many of us haven't had spiritual fathers and mothers to help us understand why these things matter, and so we struggle integrating what we see about Jesus with how we live. We just don't know how to do it. It's not that we don't want to, it's that we've had no father and no mother helping us make sense of these worlds. And so we gain a lot of Bible knowledge, but we don't know how to apply that knowledge into real-life situations. So I would encourage, if you're in that boat, to go to somebody in the church that you admire and go, could you help me learn what it means to walk with Jesus? And I would encourage those of you who are older and more mature in the faith to go to others and say, could I invite you in? Would you walk with me, meet with me, discuss with me? It's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a necessary thing for our growth in the Lord. The third question is, how are you giving attention to what God is doing amongst the nations? How? That doesn't mean everyone needs to get up right now and go, hey, I'm in, I'm going to go to that map, I'm going to pick some place. Like, you could go after it, but you better be ready. You better be ready. But here's a few ways. Pray for the gospel amongst the nations. You get a book called Operation World that's going to list out nations and their needs and things to pray for that you can use as just a guide to pray regularly for the gospel amongst the nations. You can give financially to people who are going specifically amongst the unreached. You can go and declare. You can host Talk to Matt Akers or someone else about ICX and how you can be engaged in the lives of people from other cultures. Because it's not even just going, right? If you think about it in regards to peoples and not geography, there are unreached peoples in the Houston area. People who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus. So as we finish out the gospel accounts and the story of scriptures, we begin to see what it means to be the church. The things we should be concerned about versus the things that we like to be concerned about. This is our work. This is our attention. And we do it not because we have the power to, but because Jesus has the authority and he gives us the power.